earlier this week, um, I was asking Kamala about uh, a topic that Sayadaw used to speak about or speaks about frequently, and I never quite understood it. And he said something like, there are two kinds of rare and precious individuals in the world. Those who are grateful and those who are generous. And I thought, I didn't, I didn't quite get it, but I've been thinking about it for a few years. And so I wrote to Bhikkhu Bodhi and asked him where, where the source of this quote was. And he wrote back the next, the next evening and said, well, it's in the Anguttara, two point something or other. He didn't remember uh, where it was, but when I told him that Kamala had read it somewhere in his works, then he went and found it. And he said, oh, Kamala has a really good memory, better than mine. But anyway, it was nice to get the source of the quote and to get a little clearer on what the Buddha said. And the way that Bhikkhu Bodhi translated it is, from the Anguttara Nikaya, it says, Bhikkhus, monks, those who are practicing the Dharma, these two kinds of persons are rare in the world. What two? One who takes the initiative in helping others, and one who is grateful and thankful. These two kinds of persons are rare in the world. One who takes the initiative in helping others, and the one who is grateful and thankful. These two kinds are rare in the world. So I want to speak about that tonight. Because I, I see that the result of the work we're doing here, and the benefit of the work we're doing here, is really rare. We're in the we're in the midst of it, and we think, what's, what's so rare about people like me or us? Or here we are. This whole center runs, you know, and for people like with similar interests. But in the world as a whole, it's pretty rare. And so I just want to kind of identify uh, some of what we're doing and how that really does result in being one who takes initiative to help others and one who is grateful and thankful. When asked, the Buddha said one time, the teachings of all the Buddhas, not just our Buddha, Gautama Buddha, but all the Buddhas before him, he said, the teachings of all the Buddhas is this, do good deeds, avoid causing harm, purify your mind. Do good deeds, avoid causing harm, and purify your mind. What we're doing here to cultivate the capacity to avoid causing harm is really living according to the precepts. And while you know the the grossest form of the non-precepts is killing, stealing, sexual misconduct, uh, deception through speaking, 
and use his intoxicants to the point of heedlessness. We can see in our own lives how much room there is for refining those precepts and our commitment to them and our understanding of what they mean depending on how sensitive we are, how, how aware we are of what causes us harm. And so what we're doing here in developing mindful awareness is really becoming very attuned to our heart and what it is that causes our heart to contract, to shrink, to feel hurt, to close down. And we see it not so much in our behaviors with each other, we're mostly on good behavior, but you know, in that inevitable personal history review that happens in practice when memories come up and we start recalling painful times in our life, like last week <laughs> or early childhood or whatever. And we, we feel how painful it is to be shunned, neglected, humiliated, left out, discriminated against, deceived. And it hurts. It really hurts. And we feel it in the, in the solitude of our heart, in the seclusion of our mind in a place like this. We can really uh, get get it. You can you can taste the unfiltered life, as Kamala mentioned the other night. What it's like to really feel uh, the way things really are, and not to fall into social convention or family conditioning of denial, avoidance, whatever, and to really just. See, this is, this is the way it is for the heart in the world, facing the world. And sometimes the world and the behaviors, the misbehaviors in the world are really, really brutal, really harsh, really um, assault us, assault our heart and just cause it to shrink, cause it to contract, cause it to feel pain. And so what we're doing here in uncovering our own pain and our own kinds of suffering is understanding how to live in the world so as not to cause this kind of pain and harm to others. And while it may seem like we're here uh, navel-gazing, just kind of absorbed in our own stuff, it's really not that narcissistic. It really is uh, a great gift, what we do here. It's a great gift for others that we live with and for the whole world. Because to the extent that we come to know ourselves, come to know the nature of suffering, come to know the nature of how to disentangle from suffering, um, we're going to be more careful in how we act in the world, how we treat others, 
what we expect of others. And while it may not be you know, a dramatic gesture, most of our life isn't about dramatic gestures. It's about living with some sincerity, integrity, um, simply in a way that um, benefits ourselves but doesn't harm others. So really, one thing that Sado Pantita used to speak about is that just keeping the precepts uh, in your life is a great gift. It's a tremendous act of generosity towards others because the intention is not to cause them harm. It's to really respect their life and their happiness and to uh, not do anything that, you know, within your own means that would cause harm. And when we look around the world, you know, we read the news, and you look at how harsh um, a lot of our life is, a lot of our communal, certainly political, international life is really brutal. Um, and you see how, how important it is, really, to create a sphere around yourself and uh, within your families and within your social connections, communities, if possible, how important it is to create these islands of sanity, simplicity, sincerity, uh, integrity. And while we may not be able to demand it or expect it of, of others, you know, just as we are impacted by others, others are impacted by ourselves. So if we act with awareness and consideration and uh, commitment to non-harming, other people will be affected. It's not only the unskillful, harmful behaviors that affect us, we're also affected by those who live with uh, integrity, just as others will by our own commitment to the truth. And the truth is really what we're discovering here, how it is in the heart to live in this world. So just you know, avoiding causing harm by keeping the precepts, training in them here and extending them into our life. Uh, outside the retreat, really valuable. Doing good, as the Buddha taught, there are many kinds of doing good. And the one that is mentioned in this quote that I read, the one who takes the initiative in helping others, I, it kind of sounds like that's the humanitarian impulse those who see the possibility, see the need, or feel the impulse, feel the urge to, to address suffering, or to just help others. And um, the obvious condition in our life is that there's a tremendous need. It's just, an ins just a kind of an insatiable need or an unfathomable need 
for help and assistance uh, in the world. And it's instructive to look in our own heart and mind as to uh, a couple of things. One is, why don't we see it? Why don't we feel moved to do something about it? Why do we feel so impotent? And this is at times. Sometimes we see it, sometimes we act, sometimes we don't feel impotent, but often we do. And sometimes just feel overwhelmed with the magnitude of the suffering or the magnitude or the just the incomprehension of how you address something like this. And I'm reminded of uh, Mother Teresa's uh, what I heard was her comment when she was questioned why she just took care of the people who were dying on the streets in Calcutta. You know, that was her that was her job or that was her practice, just to go out in the streets uh, in the morning and pick up those people who were going to die that day and bring them to their nunnery and care for them. And you know, she was confronted with the fact that you're not solving your problems, there's always going to be people dying like this, and you're not fixing it. And she said, I'm, I'm not a social worker. I'm not solving the problem. I'm not trying to solve the problems. I'm just trying to be kind to help this person today. And sometimes we miss the, the value of that, both to that person and to ourselves, to have just that much impact. <clears throat> And just on one person for one day really, really affects our heart. It is not insignificant. It is not um, minimal. It's not uh, unvaluable, so to speak. It is uh, a great gift to ourselves to take that opportunity. And I'm reminded of a few years ago, I was working with a group of you in Portland and coming several, several times a year to Portland to meet and I was staying in the hotels in town and it just seemed like there were just a tremendous number of homeless people or panhandlers on the street in Portland. It was just, it was just mobbed at times, seemingly. And I don't live in a city. Um, we live out in the country, and that's not to say that there aren't homeless and panhandlers in Maui, but they're not so obvious where I live, where we live out in the country. So it was just a real confront to me, and for the most part, I was in denial of what I felt for a long time. and. Thankfully, mindfulness kicked in, and I could see that I really uh, I had a lot of fear of uh, homeless people. I had a lot of fear of just walking by them. Uh, I felt confronted by their condition and what could I do about it. I didn't want to be appealed to and be hit on for anything. Um, I would cross the street so as not to walk past them, but there were people over there too. And it was just, you know, it became really uncomfortable in my heart to, to 
be living the way I was, seeing what I was seeing, feeling what I was feeling, and not doing anything about it. So I just said, you know, they may be suffering, but I'm suffering because I can feel how uncomfortable I am, how closed my heart is, how much fear I have, how much judgment I have of them, and judgment of myself for not being able to fix it or offer them or whatever. And it was just clear that I was suffering. And it was the kind of suffering that only I can recognize and only I could do anything about. And I, you know, it's pretty clear that I can't, I couldn't solve the social problems and the, you know, the addiction problems and the social service problems and the government underfunding problems of, that, that allowed all this to happen. But nevertheless, I still had to do something. I had to walk down the street and feel better about myself and feel better in, in my heart. So I took on a practice of not avoiding panhandlers, not avoiding the street people. And when I would walk down the street, I, would, I started to make a point of uh, acknowledging all of them and engaging most of them with conversation. Just like, hello, <laughs> you know, how are you? Which always elicited a really a lot of colorful responses. <laughs> but, but, you know, the, there was an amazing thing that these panhandlers and uh, homeless people became real people to me. They became real people that had stories and they had eyes and they had, you know, they had humor and they had suffering and they had everything. They were, they were people, you know, and they were humans. And it actually was, it actually became quite rewarding to me to meet them and greet them and just inquire about them for that day. And often I would ask them, what do you need? Or, how much do you need? And that was a colorful, uh, that's like a colorful bunch of responses. And, uh, and it was clear that, you know, some of them, maybe they really did need a bus, enough money for a bus ride home, or maybe some of them really did need to sell so many newspapers in order to get into the shelter that night. And some of them were pretty honest, you know, I just want a beer. You know, I just want to get some drugs or whatever it is. And it's like, it wasn't for me to, to judge them. Uh, yeah, I didn't feel so good about supporting people's unskillful, unhealthful habits, but on the other hand, I was connecting with them. And I would try to offer them something, a dollar or two or five, occasionally more than that. And it was really very instructive to me. Because even with a brief conversation with any of them, it was clear that the two dollars I gave them, or the dollar I gave them, that wasn't the value of the gift. The value of the gift was in acknowledging them, just acknowledging them as a human being, respecting them, connecting with them, and um, giving them 
you know, a few minutes of love. And money was incidental. But it was clear that I got as much happiness and connection and value and meaning and purpose as they did in that exchange. And, you know, if I add up all that I gave, all that I offered over the course of the years, only, you know, 100 or $200, which is not going to break the bank. And yet it was so rewarding, personally, instructive, and actually reduced a tremendous amount of suffering. Because now I really feel, I won't say a kinship, but I'm not afraid of panhandlers. And, and some of them are pretty scary, scary people. Scary looking, scary behaving, acting. And, you know, I mean, I do exercise some discernment and discretion, but nevertheless, most of them are really, you know, they're just hurt, they're suffering, and they're human being. And it really doesn't take a lot of resources. It just takes a willingness. It takes awareness and then a willingness to really, you know, acknowledge the suffering in your own heart and the wish to do something about it. And that's what this practice is all about, is really being aware of the conditions that are affecting your life. And it's not just all with your eyes closed, sitting in a quiet room with like-minded people. It's what do you see when you walk down the street. So, I realized that nobody was demanding it of me, and nobody was expecting it of me. But it was something that my awareness practice uh, revealed to me, that this kind of suffering, uh, only I can do something about it. And I've since, you know, found other ways of addressing the needs, maybe more skillfully, you know, donating money to organizations that collect amounts and deal with, deal with it more, maybe more efficiently. But still, I need the heart connection in the moment, too. And on my most recent visit to Portland, Uh, for those of you who live in Portland, maybe you know this, I think it's a woman. Uh, looks like she's dressed in, not really nun's robes, but she's got some kind of robes on. You know, and maybe it's the clothing from Africa, I'm not sure where. But um, she's clearly not, not connecting with reality. But we saw her outside in the pouring rain, huddled in a little doorway, and she was there at night, and she was there in the morning. She survived. And so, Tom and I were having a, a, a coffee at the Starbucks, and we said, let's, let's buy her some breakfast. So I bought her, you know, a, a hot sandwich and a, and a croissant or something, and I took the bag over to her, and I just said, well, I want to give you the some breakfast. She was like adamantly opposed to anything. She was just like, don't get get away from me, don't I don't want anything to get away from So I said, well just no, I don't want that, I don't want your breakfast, I don't want anything. So kind of said, well just just put it on the you know the, the there was some 
something on the sidewalk there. She put it on the sidewalk, so, you know, a little box or something. So I put it on there. She kicked it off. She kicked it down the sidewalk. And it's like, <laughs> you know, sometimes you can't help people. So I didn't want to litter the highway. I didn't want to litter the sidewalk. So I picked it up, walked down the street, and there was another homeless person. I offered it then. They were quite happy to receive it. <laughs> but, you know, it's like, we're not doing this to get, you know, appreciated so much as to just to generate some love and compassion and generosity in, in our own heart. A second way, and I mentioned that keeping the, the precepts is a way of not harming. It's also a way of uh, offering a gift. And I'm thinking particularly of some reflections I've had recently on the second uh, precept, which is to not steal, but to not take, in a more refined sense, to not take what is not offered. And my reflections are going in this direction. We live in a very uh, abundant society. And it's pretty clear, uh, I, don't, I don't mean to, to make a political statement to start a political debate, but it's pretty clear that uh, our use of the Earth's resources is having a negative impact on others in the world. Uh, whether it's climate change or forest depletion, whatever it is, it's pretty clear that it's having a pretty major effect. And then I remember this um, quote, by the Buddha, he said, as one of the wise ones, I resort to remote uh, forests, uh, jungles, or uh, places uh, that are remote from society because of two reasons. He says, I resort to remote forests because I see a pleasant abiding for myself here and now. Okay. I can kind of get that. We're here in this forest. It's remote, relatively. It's in the forest. And pleasant abiding? Well, we're working on that. We're hoping to find a pleasant abiding here. But you can see that there's a certain refreshment that comes from being in the forest, being out of the city, being out of our, you know, the domestic, civic, social, political swirl of our our lives, just to retreat. Okay. So he said, I see a pleasant abiding for myself here now. And then he said, I also resort to remote forests, jungles, places like that, because I have compassion for future generations. What does that mean? The Buddha resorted to remote forests like this out of compassion for future generations. I haven't quite figured it out yet. It's kind of like a the person of coma. What do you mean? But I kind of get the sense that, or my reflections kind of go in this direction. If I can find solace here, if I can see that, oh, this is a place of refreshment for the heart, then are there going to be 
forests like this for future generations? Are we using the Earth's resources in such a way as to preserve places like this for future generations? And I wonder if, if we could ask uh, the children, grandchildren, great-great-grandchildren, great-great-aunts, uncles, whatever they are, nieces and nephews, down the line, you don't have your own children, you have friends who have children. You know, head, head, head into the future, two or three or four generations, and ask them in your imagination, did you give us permission to use the resources of the earth that we did? I'm not sure. I can't honestly say that there's going to be a resounding, of course, yes, we really appreciate you using the earth's resources as you did. So for me, to, to reflect on the second precept, to not take what is not offered, I have to think about future generations. And to me, that is not easy. And it's painful. Because it asks me to address, to <coughs> acknowledge and address the suffering that I see now and that is pretty clearly coming to future generations. We're practicing this way, and as Kamala mentioned the other night, you know, the two wings of the Dhamma, the two wings of liberation are wisdom and compassion. And if it's just wisdom that you get without compassion, there's no liberation. And so we need to use our wisdom in looking at the conditions of our life, both personal, communal, political, environmental, and address them with compassion. That's the work. And I've been cautioned uh, that, you know, we shouldn't introduce political topics in retreat spaces like this. Well, I'm not, I'm not, I don't mean to be introducing political topics so much as I'm asking you to reflect on wisdom and compassion in relationship to second, second precept. How do we use the resources of the earth in a way that doesn't cause unnecessary harm? So that's just some of my reflections on what the Buddha meant, that one who takes the initiative in helping others is a rare individual. And the second, rare kind of individual is one who's grateful and thankful. It seems so obvious that we have everything to be grateful for. I'm sure in your practice today, though, you you found plenty to whinge and whine about. <laughs> it, just, it just happens, you know. There's, there's, there's all kinds of things we can piss and moan and kind of complain about, uh, whether it's ourselves or each other or, you know, domestic situations, civic, social, and certainly political and economic, and there's just lots to complain about or to wish for otherwise. And yet, 
It's easy. Maybe the harder, and maybe this is why it's so rare, the harder path is to really look at our life and see how much we have to be grateful for. And we know that, but I'll just remind you, of all of humanity over the last hundred thousand years or more, we're living at the top of the heap. I mean, beyond the top of the heap. I mean, there was no top of the heap like this for most people that ever lived. And we're living at the top. And as bad as it is for us, whether you have economic problems or you've got health problems, and we, we all have fears and anxieties and things to be concerned about, we still live at the top of the heap. And for, for those of us in this room, um, we're healthy enough to be here, most of us. Um, we have discretionary time. We don't have to spend all day lugging water from five miles away to get the water to make dinner. Uh, we have some discretionary income to afford things like this. And it's just rare. It, just those conditions are rare in the world. And yet it's so ordinary for us. It's so ordinary, so normal almost, that we have this kind of time, this kind of money, this kind of whatever. And yet, it's so easy to forget how most people in the world do not have this opportunity. Many don't have good enough health. Many don't have enough to eat. Many don't have the safety in their society to travel like we do or don't have the political freedom to, or even these kind of teachings are not encouraged or allowed in certain places. Can you believe it? These teachings not allowed in some countries. Unbelievable, isn't it? But it's true. So it's like, wow. When we look at what it is we could be grateful for, we can look to, um, you know, we chant the, the chant every night, the reflections on the sharing of blessings. Well, the Buddha gave a whole discourse on the blessings. What are the blessings in our life? What are the, what are the conditions that most bless our life, that most contribute to happiness, a real sense of happiness and well-being? Now, well-being is a subjective feeling, of course. Um, there are external standards of whether it's income or health or whatever political system you live under, and there are those things, but it's a subjective thing too. And when we look at what it is that we can subjectively recognize as uh, contributing to our well being we clearly have to acknowledge our health. Living in the West, our education, the fact that we, most of us, have a job or have had jobs or can get jobs or have some adequate finances. Uh, most of us can take care of our kids reasonably well. 
And it looks that even in this realm, and even in the realm of just personal, personally getting getting along in the world, there's so much to be grateful for. Just so much. And that's not the end of it. You know, we have also the... possibility of happiness and harmony in our personal relationships. Because we just we can have families, we can have communities, we can have safe communities, we can we can participate in civic and social organizations. And one of the one of the great one of the great uh, I guess you call it deficiencies in Burma today is there's no no recent history of civic and social organizations. The government didn't allow it. Didn't allow meetings of more than three to five people. So how are you going to have, how are you going to develop a civic and social life in a community? And what we and others are discovering, trying to work in Burma to kind of bring them into the 21st century, into the 20th century, let alone the 21st, is that they don't know how to they don't know how to work together in groups. The community knows how to work in farms, farming and building the communal buildings, but that's it. And it's like, wow, we take it for granted that if you have an interest in something and you find other people that are interested in the same thing, you can do it to your heart's content. You can meet and talk and agitate and educate and participate. In a lot of places in the world, you cannot. Wow. Something like that, we don't even take, we, we take it so for granted, we don't even recognize that it is contributing to our happiness and something to be grateful for. Until you see that others don't have that opportunity. And then, for all of us, and many others, we have access to the Dharma. And we have access to these teachings which are not insignificant. I don't know how it was for you to, <coughs> to come to come to the Dharma, <coughs> but I asked a group uh, that I meet with in Seattle. Maybe I mentioned it. Uh, how how did you? How many of you came to the Dharma through suffering, because of your personal suffering or some, you know, just real distress in your life? Looked for meditation or self-help or some way of dealing with it. And, you know, like 23 out of 25 said suffering. And there were a couple of us that said, you know, curiosity, basically. Like, what's this got to offer for life? But it just shows how much need there is for guidance, instruction, effective, really effective tools to deal with the, the personal suffering and the personal limitations in life. And the Dharma is just, well, invaluable, as we all know, for pointing to the qualities of heart and mind to be developed, those to be uh, limited, and the tools how to do that. The Dharma is very effective, very 
pragmatic and practical. And not just that it kind of help us with psychological well-being, but it really ennobles our spirit. You know, we really can aspire to more than just getting by, more than just uh, making ends meet. We can really aspire to a nobility in our life and find the resources to support it with places like this and retreats and teachings, not, not just us, but other teachings that are, that are just um, offering uh, the best, really, when you think about it. What, can you, what, what better thing can you do with your human life than develop the human qualities as much as you can? And I mean that that which really makes us human, generosity and kindness and compassion and understanding and service and humility and the list is endless. Who is going to encourage you? Where are you going to get the guidance? Who is going to value it? You know, when you find a community like this, or when you find a Sangha, whatever Sangha, you know, you really can, you really can take refuge. And this is what taking refuge in the Sangha really means, is that there are like-minded people in the world, so that when you embark on this journey of discovery, and this journey of really coming to understand the, the truth of pain, the truth of suffering, the, the reality of being a human being, there are those in the world who will support you. You don't have to meet with denial and obfuscation and uh, belittling or shaming or humiliating. You really can find a community of support in sanghas because you know, we're all practicing acknowledging the truth. We're practicing seeing the way it is and copying to it. It's just like, this is the way it is in the world. Not just to get depressed or get fearful or get bumped out, or, but to really acknowledge life's hard. Being a human being is really hard work. And it involves a lot of suffering. A lot of disappointment, a lot of challenges, and you know what? That's okay. That's the way it is. And we can support each other in that, you know, without making it a success or failure, without thinking that you're a failure because this is what you're up against. I remember when I did my first retreat, and I heard the, the well, I went to my first retreat totally accidentally. I didn't know what I was doing. I thought I was going on a resort. <laughs> you know, I didn't know anybody who was a meditator, I didn't know anything about Buddhism, I wasn't interested in meditation or spiritual practices, I was into the Grateful Dead and Pink Floyd, and, you know, and so when I heard the teachings on the First Noble Truth, the truth of suffering and pain and vulnerability, I was like, what are you talking about? I don't get it. That, you know, I, I didn't feel like my life was like that at all. I was in total denial, <laughs> you know. And for me to acknowledge that there was some suffering or some pain or some tension or distress in my life would have meant to me that I was a personal failure. That's what it would have meant. And I couldn't, I could not acknowledge that. I couldn't, as 
Now, I set out back and I was in utter screaming agony and misery in the body and my emotions and my heart, everything was just in utter screaming agony, but I wasn't suffering. You know, I couldn't acknowledge that. And it's just, you know, I, I'm really now, after almost 40 years, I am so thankful. I am so grateful. I, I, just, I just can't express how grateful I am that I had Dharma teachers back then who were willing to bring suffering out of the closet. And just say, you know what? This is a reality. And even though I denied it for years and just couldn't get it, could not see it in my own life, somehow practice will reveal it if you keep looking. And now I'm so grateful because if you know your suffering, you can do something about it. If you don't know your suffering, you'll keep perpetuating it. And so it's not it's not bad. It's not wrong. You're not a failure. You're not practicing incorrectly if you've seen some suffering on this retreat. You're not. It is really the first step in coming out of denial and getting a handle on your life and what's really important and dealing with it effectively. And you're not going to find most people support you in that. You know, it's kind of contrary. Most people want to be be happy. Smoke this, drink that, go here, buy that, be happy. You know, and we get that message all the time. You know, I'm so grateful for you, you know, having a sangha like this, people who, who get it, people who, who've touched life really, really are trying hard to uh, be here, be real, you know, get to the bottom of this and share uh, your experiences, share your life, share your understanding, share the share what you found works because we're all in this similar situation. And that's all we're doing is trying to kind of help each other get real. You know, this is what it's like to be a human being. And it's okay. It's okay. Whatever you feel, it's okay. And in the bottom of this, or at the other end of the spectrum, now, it's not just opening to suffering and getting, and getting familiar with your pain, but it's actually learning how to free the mind, free the heart, and how to really bring the, bring the heart to uh, the nobility of what humans are possible, what is possible for humans. And when you look around the world, or you look through history to great humans, whether it's the, you know, the truth, truthfulness of Martin Luther King, or the love of Jesus, or the compassion of Mother Teresa, or the courage of Rosa Parks, or you know, just the resolve of Aung San Suu Kyi in, under house arrest for 20 years. Whatever it is, we have this same potential within us. Their love, their compassion, their resolve, their energy, their commitment to the truth is not beyond us. It is the human potential. And we're human. This practice is the key to awakening the potential, recognizing the potential, awakening the potential, and manifesting it as much as you can. Uh, 
in this life. It doesn't do any of us any good. I've read something, I'm paraphrasing poorly, but it doesn't do any of us any good to act small, to kind of succumb to our limitations that will poor me. There's no, there's no greatness in that. That's not humility. Humility is valuable, of course, but there's a potential within each one of us that is unrealized, but it's available. I want to tell you a story about one rare individual I met in my life. After I'd been in uh, Burma for, I don't know, four, four and a half years or so, and I was about ready to leave Burma, these two Burmese women came to see me one afternoon. I didn't know them, but they spoke English. So they came to me and they said, basically, you're going to meet our teacher. And Every, everybody in Burma's got a teacher. Every family has their sayadaw, or their favorite nun, or whatever. They've all got their teachers. And I'd seen a lot, I'd met a lot, I'd done my practice, I was ready to go back to the States. I wasn't interested in meeting another teacher. But they were insistent, they were just relentless. They just said, you, have got, you cannot leave Burma until you meet our teacher. And, well, I couldn't avoid it, so I said, okay, okay. So I made the date, then they came to pick me up in there, in the taxi. Taxi is the back of a pickup. And on the way to visit this, their teacher, they were telling me about him that years ago he used to be uh, a teaching monk at the monastery I was at. He used to teach at the Mahasi Meditation Center in Rangoon. And in fact, he was the first monk that Mahasi Saida, who started kind of the tradition that we practice in, uh, he was the first monk that Mahasi Saida had invited to teach at the meditation center when he opened it in 1949. And he was very popular. And as soon as the meditation center opened, it was, it was a center for lay people, not just for monks and nuns, but households like ourselves. It just a lot of people just started coming. And so there was just dozens and hundreds and thousands of people just started coming and so he got very busy as a teacher and after he'd been there for a few years it wasn't really his uh, aspiration to be busy teaching thousands of people so he asked for permission to leave and to go on his own as monks monks do monks wander around on their own sometimes they have uh, monasteries that they found or established or that they added up, but they don't always stay there, they travel a lot, just wandering. And Mahasi said, said no, he couldn't, couldn't leave, he had, to keep, he had to stay there and keep teaching. So he stayed and kept teaching, and after a few more years, when I got more bureaucratic stuff and more people and more teaching, he asked again if he could be relieved of his duties so that he could go and do his own practice or so he could and again, Mahasi Saito said, no, he needed him to stay there. So he stayed. After 10 years, he asked for the third time if he could be relieved of his teaching duties. And there's something magical, there's something magical about asking three times in Buddhist teaching. You know, the third time, Mahasi Saito said, okay. So he left the monastery, he went to the edge of Rangoon, what was then the edge of Rangoon, to a small forest monastery, or found a small piece of forest, made his own monastery, of a couple of acres, and that's where he lived. 
And he just lived simply as a monk, uh, just doing his alms around and doing his meditation practice. But over the past previous ten years, all these people that had come to practice with him in the center of Rangoon inquired about him, found out where he lived, and they went to see him. And we were on our way to meet him because he was very popular. And these two women told me that their mother had been, their whole family had been devotees of him. And their mother had been a student and had always supported him, always wanted to uh, kind of care for him, make sure he had what he needed. And she had a standing offer to build a building at his monastery. And she wouldn't, he wouldn't accept it. He, he had a little shack and that was all he needed and there was a couple other monks that stayed there and that was it. So he would accept it. But a lot of women in Burma, when they finish their household duties or their husband passed away or the kids are grown and gone, they go to the monastery and stay. And they, you know, they, they take care of the buildings and clean and sweep and run up. But mostly they do their own practice. And so there was a large dormitory in this um, little forest monastery for women and a big meditation hall because people moved to that area of Rangoon in order to be around him and they would come to work, they go to work during the day, but at night they come to the monastery to practice. So we drove through this vast sprawling suburbia and we got to this little forest, like a two-acre forest in the middle of this <laughs> just endless, you know, shanty towns in Burma. And we went in and there's no roads in there, you just park your car outside and outside, we walked in, and it was just so cool in there. There was a forest, and there was old trees, and it was just, you know, for, and they told me that for, for many years, he wouldn't allow electricity, no cement buildings, no cement pathways, no phone, nothing. Just like at the time of the Buddha. You know, just a simple shack for monks, and a little place to eat, and a dormitory for the women. But now we have electricity. So we went there, went to his cottage, and his cottage, you now you got to remember, this guy is a famous, I mean, he's really well-known throughout Burma, famous monk, and his little cottage is not very big. It's like, what? You know the, you know the, the maybe the kit, maybe the dining room size, not, not with the, you know, it's like, it's like a living room size. And that's where he lived. So we went in, and they were talking to him, and, I told him about my time as a monk, and he was just very, he was just very simple. He was very attentive. He was not uh, ostentatious. He wasn't, he wasn't anything. He was just, he was just really present without making much of an effort about it. But he was, really had a lot of presence, and I was really impressed with him. So I asked if I could uh, come practice with him, and. He'd never had foreigners practice with him before, and at that time in Burma, foreigners couldn't go practice with him anyway. He had to have a permit to go anywhere, to do anything. But I went back to my monastery, and I knew if I asked for permission from my monastery to go to this monastery, they, they wouldn't hear of it, so I didn't ask. I just went to the government office to get a permit. And, you know, the government people, even though they're all carrying guns and machine at this time, guns, machine guns, everything, as soon as I walk in with, as a monk, you know, first thing they do, they put down their guns. You know, and some of them will take off their boots 
they have their boots because they're really, really respectful of monks. And they just put down their guns. And when I asked for someone's signature to give me a permit to go to stay with this other monk, they were more than happy to give me the permit. And so I went to his monastery to stay with him for a while. And he gave me, when I went, he gave me his, his meditation room to practice in. Now his meditation room was attached to his living quarters. And it was a room about, about as long as this hall, maybe 60 feet, but it was four feet wide. There was a bed at one end and a toilet at the other. And the windows were such that you couldn't see out horizontally, you could only see out the ground below. So nobody could look in and you couldn't look out. But there was a place to sleep, a place to sit, and a place to go to the toilet. That was it. So I walked in this building, and he said, and I said, well, when do we go on alms round? Because I'm going to have to go get food every day. And he said, you don't need to go on alms round. He and the other monks would go, and they would bring back the food and share with me. So I said, okay. So I go in the room, and I'm practicing. You know, and just sit and walk. Sit, walk, sleep a little bit. Sit, walk, sleep a little bit. Go to the toilet, take a bath, take a shower each day. Sit, walk. You know, after three or four days, I was just about crazy. <laughs> it's like, you're in a room, you're in a box, you know, how do you get your mind? You know, there's no distraction. <laughs> so I, I said, well, I'm going to go and walk around the monastery a little bit. So I went to the door to get out, and I, I opened the door to step out, and he's standing right there. <laughs> and he just looks at me, so kind, like, not even questioning, like, what are you doing? Just so kind. You know, and I thought, I don't really need to go out. <laughs> I went back in, and, uh, you know, another half a dozen days went by, and I was getting pretty cabin fever again. And I just thought, oh, i got to go out and just walk around, get a little fresh air. And I go to the door again, open the door, step out, and there he is, and right there. <laughs> you know, when you, like, as I mentioned the other night, when you're, when you're practicing with People whose mind is like that, you got nothing to hide. You got nothing to be ashamed of. You got nothing to fear because they know everything. It's amazing. It's, it's, they don't have to tell you what they're doing. You get it. You see it. It's like there's no denying. They got some capacity. And it's really so supportive. Uh, practice. It's just like, it's like, you know, what are you going to hide? You don't, you, you don't want to hide from yourself, and you can't hide from them. It's like, what is is, and you might as well acknowledge it. It's so liberating, really. Anyway, the last day, the last couple of days when I was staying there, he said, oh, you can go on an round with me tomorrow. And so I said, okay, what time? 6.30. Got up, got dressed, got all my robes on, went out to get in line, and it was, you know, maybe a dozen monks. He was at the head, he inspects everybody to make sure you get your robes on right, get your bowl and everything. And so we head out. And that night before, there had been one of those kind of village festivals near nearby where they just talk and chant and do whatever they do over loudspeakers all night. You know, and it's just, it's just like 
no sound ordinance at all. <laughs> and it's just so loud, and was, they were doing something. But anyway, we started walking out of the monastery, got to the edge of the forest, and he stepped aside and he waved the other monks through. And when I came by in the line, he pulled me out of the line, and the rest of the monks went out the monastery, and we were still inside. And I looked at where they went, and outside the forest, where they were going on the long trail, there were just hundreds of people lined up all along the road to serve them their alms for the day. But he turned around and motioned for me to follow him, and he went out back to the monastery, went out the back way. Nobody out there. And we just walked through these dusty pathways, mostly ox carts. Not, not for vehicles, but bicycles and ox carts. And we walked for five, ten minutes just out through suburbia. Well, well slum town suburbia. Until we came to a place where there was a little market and he was recognized and people came from all over. We just pulled up to this one little shop and we just stood there for like 10 minutes while people from all over that village, all, all around that section, just came to offer food and flowers and anything because they were so grateful to have him in their life. Because he'd been there for 30 years at that point. Just a presence of integrity and truthfulness in their life. And they moved, most of them had moved to that area in order to be with him, to practice with him in the evenings and to support him. And just out of their gratitude for his practice, they support him. Well, he took me on an on a, on an alms round walk that day, a couple hours long, and everywhere we went, it was just dozens, hundreds of people. Not lined up because they weren't expecting him, but just would come from whenever they heard about it. And you get these little temple boys with plastic bags, you know, little temple boys, little short street urchins, and they've got, you know, half a dozen bags in each hand, just, just totally full of food and flowers and occasionally robes and everything. And they take it back to the monastery. Well, we got back and we had our little bit to eat. And then all the food that was collected gets distributed to the poor. Because monks can't keep food overnight. So it all gets given away. And he, his life, the quality of his life, the integrity of his life, the Kind of sincerity of his commitment to the Dharma was his gift to them. You know, and out of his life, all these people had good life, or had him in their midst, kind of organizing their their life for them. And it's easy to see how that kind of life, living as a, a pillar of integrity and commitment and truthfulness and sincerity is a powerful, powerful um, expression of um, uh, commitment and one's gratitude for the opportunity that such a life offers. And he was definitely a rare person.
and his uh, his name was Shuiu Min Sayadaw, and his successor is Utejaniya, one whose books we have here. So that's my connection with Sayadaw Utejaniya. Mm. So thank you for listening. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.